0: Hello, and welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic. Yes, you heard that correctly. A Toddcast, because today we're joined by our favorite and so far only guest host, Todd Rezadek. Hello, everybody. Todd, we're so glad to have you on. My name is Justice Epen, and I am one of your regular hosts, joined by the other regular host, my exquisite friend and colleague, Eric Ostrich. Howdy. So today is a very unusual episode. I need to preface it with a warning. Which is that we had planned to interview a guest as we normally do with the surprise guest host of Todd. And unfortunately, he had to reschedule. So we decided that we would call in some friends in the community who have and have not been on the show before and just have a conversation. So this is a really spectacular event. We actually have lined up. Angel Jose, we've got Dave Lucio, we've got Greg Mefford, we've got Melvin Cedino, and we've got Zach Thomas. Now Zach Thomas, Melvin, Greg are all speaking at Lone Star Elixir 2020. I don't know if this episode will be out by then, but they are all speaking at Lone Star. Eric is speaking at Lone Star. Todd is speaking at Lone Star. I am emceeing Lone Star. So this is really turning into a sort of Lone Star warm-up episode. And we just wanted to give you guys a heads up that it's not our normal format. And if you don't want to listen to an experiment, then you can leave now. But I think it actually turned out really nicely. And you're probably going to enjoy it if you stick around. Well, this is Elixir Wizards, and we hope you enjoy the show. Todd, you just recently... Left a long time role at Weed Maps, and you have now moved on to bigger and better things. Can you tell us about the bigger and better things?
1: Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. So uh, yeah, a lot of people know me as the Weed Maps guy, and <laughs> Weed Maps is a, a still a great place. It was a great opportunity for me to begin working in Elixir full time. However, all good things must come to an end. And I uh, reconnected with an old friend of mine, Dave Lucia, after hearing him on a uh, podcast. Which podcast? And which podcast? I don't remember now. It's it's <laughs> it's not important. But yeah, I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. All the stuff that that they're working on at SimpleBet—they're using machine learning and porting out from Elixir. And as I learn more, like the project that I'm working on now is using live view to present the front end of the web so that's really been interesting and like probably everybody that's doing production live view right now we're learning a lot along the way mm-hmm. as the API changes weekly sometimes but mm-hmm. thankfully there are some people out there in the community especially want to throw a shout out to uh, Sophie de Benedetto for all of her documentation and actually her willingness to to help hmm. explain some things. So yeah, it's, it's been fun few weeks so far and yeah.
0: So I have a question about LiveView, which is how beginner friendly is it? Do you think it's something that an entry level programmer could pick up rather quickly, it's, especially as you just mentioned that the API changes sometimes weekly, Is that are those breaking changes or tell us a little bit more?
1: So I started there at the beginning of the year and we're recording this at the end of February. So about eight weeks. So when I started the project, it was on 0.4 and there was a couple of APIs that were breaking changes in Mm 0.6 and then another one in 0.7. So, hey, we're being joined now by a special guest, Angel Jose from Cars, works at cars.com.
2: Hey, what's going on?
1: Hey, ¿qué onda?
2: ¿Qué ondas? What's happening ese?
1: Not much. So Angel is an old friend of mine. So I met Angel at my first Elixir Conf, same one that I met you at, Justice. We got to talking and he was living in the same neighborhood I was living in when I was in LA. We've just been keeping in touch ever since. And now Angel has moved to the Denver area. So I'm looking forward to seeing him at our next local Erlang and Elixir meetup. So, Angel, you started working at cars.com, what, a few months ago now. How's that been going?
2: It's been fun. It's been fun to work full-time in Elixir, and the Elixir land. So, that's been really, really good to see a much bigger project than I was used to. I was just working on startups before. So, this is just a tiny bit bigger base. Cool. Mm. Did you work with Mike Binz when he was working with cars from Dockyard? Mike's still there. Uh, there's a couple other okay. Dockyarders on the active team, which is nice to have them. Kind of back us up. Very cool.
1: So you were working on a chat application previously, if I remember correctly. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's how I got started in Elixir. We were writing chat bots, so we were routing traffic and doing all that messaging on the back end, connecting people. So we would write integrations for like Facebook, Kick, Telegram, several other platforms. And <laughs> what startup is this? So the original startup is gone now, but it was Sensei, S-E-N-S-A-Y, and it started off as just a chat bot platform. So it was kind of fun. You would, whatever topic you want to chat about, you would send in a request and then we would route you to someone that was interested in that. And then you could pick up a one-on-one chat. And the cool thing was that you could continue using whatever platform you were on. So you could mm. be chatting from like Slack to Facebook or even SMS via Twilio. What happened to the technology? It just morphed. So the platform, the project just morphed mm. into something else. And mm. I mean, the code base
0: is still there but not much use to it right now. But it's proprietary. Yeah. Palmer, <laughs> oh, I love that stuff. I would love to have taken a look at how you accomplish some of the uh, trickier aspects of cross-platform. We could pair up on a side project one day.
3: <laughs>
0: oh,
2: yeah. Let's
0: do that.
1: Nice. So, Angel, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing at CARS?
2: Ooh, cars so cars is actually a fun thing it's quite the ambitious project going from their existing platform existing user base and rewriting everything into open source via elixir and some using live view actually like going to production with live view and just trying to first achieve parity and then after that build on top of that so it's been quite the push to be able to get that out of the door i think the goal is in the next couple quarters be able to be out the door with with actual traffic to the new code base. So,
1: so what was the previous code base like, or the current code base, I guess?
2: I haven't really touched it, to be honest with you. I think it's just a lot of enterprise type contracts and integrations. So now they're trying to keep everything open source. So that's fun. And building out a large remote team to accomplish it. So that's also been nice that I get to not have to go to Chicago.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with Elixir, kind of leading up to and getting this job at Cars? Because like, I'm curious... How interview processes go in Elixir now. It's such an early adopter kind of ecosystem. Talk a little bit about your time working on the chatbots and how your skill development and how you learned Elixir. Yeah. All of it. Sure. All of it. So,
2: well, we started writing chatbots. We originally were writing them in Ruby and we were running into some issues with the scale of traffic. We had we hit some pretty nice traffic at the time of the chatbots. So we started looking into what else we can write it in. Uh, Former CTO where I was working had been digging into Elixir a little bit. So he's like, hey, let's try this out. So we did a short spike on it and it ended up working well with very, very minimal resources. So the main drive wasn't actually how easy it was to write. I think it was just how easy it was to maintain. Like bad Elixir could still stay up and running for a very long time. That was quite the draw, especially with a small team. So we rewrote everything, all the Ruby bots we had into into Elixir. We minimized kind of like the different resources we needed to be able to run the platform. Once we started pivoting, the company started pivoting into the blockchain space, blockchain. But yeah, we started going into the blockchain space. So I had to write some backend stuff and I really enjoyed writing Elixir. Uh, CTO was gone at that time but I was writing most of the back end. So I just stuck with it and it worked well there too. So, so you did
0: come from an, a Ruby background though. Yeah, Ruby background. How long did you spend writing Elixir before you were able to move to cars? And
2: So I think it's probably about a year and a half, I'd say. Maybe like a year and a half, two years at most. Probably like some early stuff as back as two years, but writing it mainly day-to-day is probably about a year and a half. And that kind of maintained until I started looking around for a project to work on. I really like Elixir, so I started looking specifically for Elixir positions. So I was very, very determined to continue writing Elixir. <laughs> I really wanted to continue that that path. So I saw that there was a couple of companies out there, Cars being one of them. I think uh, what you mentioned, it's not so common to have a lot of background in Elixir. So even like a year, year and a half, probably uh, was just like a flag of, like, hey, let's at least chat with this dude and see what's up because there's not a lot of experience out there with Elixir yet.
1: Yeah, that's a common story I hear is people who are playing around with Elixir or get on their first Elixir projects, they're holding out for Elixir full-time work even though they may have like qualifications for other stacks. A lot of people I know are kind of hanging out and only interviewing for the Elixir jobs. So, well very cool. It's good to get an update from you, Angel. We're going to Invite some other guests in to join us today. But thanks for joining us, telling us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about cars.com. Any final plugs, Angel Jose?
2: No plugs. Just, you know, continue writing cool Elixir so I can follow it and copy it. So (laughs) thanks, everyone.
1: Cool. Hopefully, we'll see you at a conference soon. For sure. All right. Thanks for coming on, Angel. You got it. Take
0: care, guys. Bye. And so we have another guest waiting in the wings. You know, I wish we had gotten the chance to ask Angel if he would be at ElixirConf Aurora this year.
1: Well, he was there last year. He was? Yes, he and his wife were out there last year. So, if that's any indication, hopefully he'll show up this year.
0: Great. And, you know, even if he's not at the conference, we should visit with him. Maybe we'll do a, a show in person. He seems really interesting. I love chatbots and blockchain and would be really happy to do an episode on Elixir
4: chatbots and blockchain. Well, I think like half of ElixirConf is always blockchain stuff. So I'm sure you'll you'll get a chance. Oh boy. Oh boy.
1: El Hefe, welcome to the Toddcast. Oh my God, it's Todd.
0: <laughs> Everybody, we have our second guest of the show joining us right now. It's Dave Lucia from SimpleBet. Hey, Dave. Hello. Oh,
5: wow. How's it going? Wow, Justice, you have so much more facial hair than the last time I saw you.
0: Or do I have less facial hair but more concentrated in one place? Hard to say. Mm. <laughs> How are you, dude? <laughs> How's the weather up there in New York City? Are you at the office? I am at the office. It's rainy and it's kind of horrible out. So this might just become a simple bet episode. <laughs> Since Dave, you've been on the show before. You are the VP of engineering at Simple Bet, which is a very rapidly growing startup in New York City. Do you want to give the elevator pitch? Sure.
5: Simple Bet is a sports betting company. We make it so that you could bet on in-play things. So for a baseball game, if someone's coming up to bat, you could bet that they're going to hit a home run or they're going to strike out or they're going to hit a double or triple. And what we do is we we both make apps, but we also our, our main business is that we sell those odds for those markets as a service to other sports betting companies.
0: And what's it like coming into a podcast where one of your colleagues is is, is, is already is our
4: special host, our guest host? <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's subordinate, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's like. <laughs> <laughs> Where one of your subordinates is not working on simple bet products right now. It is farting around at a podcast. Well,
5: <laughs> I'm really sorry to tell you this, Todd, but you're fired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> live on the, the air. air. Firing. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. It's always great to see Todd. So this was just a, a great surprise. And we're looking forward to seeing Todd at Lone Star.
0: For, so thanks for letting him go to that.
5: You know, I'm very jealous that you all will be there. Eric keeps telling me that it's just as easy as buying a flight. Other Yeah, you just gotta show up. <laughs> I'd love to just show up, that'd be cool.
0: Before you joined, actually before Angel even joined, we were talking to Todd a little bit about using LiveView and how beginner friendly it is as far as like, can you teach LiveView to in- beginner or in- entry level developers? I'm curious, Dave, from your perspective, like, how is it going with your Elixir teams? I'm curious how you do, Like, do you do any cross-training? You've got a very diverse set of skills over there at SimpleBet. So maybe you could talk about the ecosystem a little bit in general, the tech stack in general, and then just talk about like cross-training. Have you seen success training people up on Elixir, all that?
5: Sure. Where do I start? Well, first of all, so we are using a lot of Elixir. Todd is on a team that is only Elixir, but our main stack that, that generates those odds mm. that we sell is a combination of Elixir and Python. There used to be a lot of Rust in it, but no more. I'm giving a talk about that next week, so if you're going to code really be about it. You.
3: <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, actually a few members on this podcast right now have dived into those that, that code base. So we have a lot of Elixir, and that is doing a lot of coordination of Dealing with live baseball data and making decisions and delegating out to some Python code. So there's intermingled Elixir and Python. We're using LiveView in a few different places. And to be honest with you, I still don't feel that I'm completely comfortable with it. I tried building like a toy app a few months ago and I got into the situation where I had, uh, <laughs> I was just doing something silly and I built a list of forms and the web page just like broke horribly. And I still don't know why. <laughs> I actually recently tried to put a link tag around a table row, which apparently is invalid XML, uh, HTML, but also just horribly breaks Phoenix HTML. Sorry, I'm going on a, on a tangent here. Phoenix LiveView is cool. I don't know exactly how I feel about it yet. It seems like the testing story is still TBD. I feel like Todd is, could probably speak to that a
1: lot more than I can. But in order, in terms of teaching it, it's been relatively straightforward. One thing I'm interested in is how you made the decision or whomever made the decision to incorporate LiveView instead of, you know, most places I'm familiar with or that I've worked before, there's like the front end team and and there's SPA frameworks and then the Elixir team, which is working on APIs for them. So like who made that decision and how did they come to that decision to to just use LiveView instead? So
5: we had we had started down the path of you know do you React for your, your front end basically everything we're using it for are internal tooling right so we had started down the path of, of building a React app and using that to expose certain types of data and certain types of forms that you might interact with that ended up not going so well and the reason being is that at the time we had this front end team who was like more you know on the junior side. And so there's a lot of stuff that should have been pushed to the back end and ended up getting <laughs> pushed all into the front end so a lot of data transformation and delegation happening in the front end. And then when we like looked at it again, we're like, well this would be a lot simpler if we kept most of this in the back end and then the natural progression is well is live view mature enough to throw in for an internal project. I don't think there was ever like a formal point where it's like we have decided that live view is the way that we do things, but we Started going down that path, and it, it just kept being an easy to use tool that was very accessible and seemed to work well enough. I don't think we've hit too many snags, other than some breaking API changes. Todd could again speak more of that than I can.
1: Yeah, we talked a little bit about that already. So, as with anything that follows semantic versioning and and has a zero major version, you have to bite the bullet and expect that there will be some potential breaking changes. You know. Just everything blows up and then you go to the changelog and realize, Oh yeah, that's this thing changed to this. So yeah, I mean, in my experience, it has been very easy to use. And that's coming from somebody that has never really done a full stack job before. So, and never really had any interest in learning react or any of those front end frameworks. So this moves everything into gen server syntax, basically. So even a guy like me can understand how to make it work. So.
5: And it, my impression has been that you and, and the team you're on have been more, moving pretty quickly with, with LiveView and, and getting a lot done in, in a way that I don't think you could do with front end back end split. Might be wrong, but that's just my impression.
1: Yes, we <laughs> have we have le- picked it up pretty fast, and so that it has been good. To be fair, with like the front end back end split, then you're also like adding more personalities to the mix, and then. You've got that everybody having to communicate and having two different code bases that have to be deployed at the right times. So I would agree that it is slower, but to use two different teams. But I would also say it's probably to be expected in some ways as well. So don't underestimate the power of small teams, I guess. Definitely. Definitely. Have you ever seen that meme? It's like a, a drawing of a horse, and like the back end of the horse is really well shaded. And it's like a really, really good drawing. And then the front of it just falls apart and turns into like one of Picasso's later works. I don't know if you've seen that, but the caption on it is full stack developer. And <laughs> to me, that's, that's what I think of when I think of full stack developer. But in this case, like even the JavaScript is, is written in Elixir. So I think I've been surprised at how successful we've been able to uh, be given our lack of JavaScript our recent javascript experience i guess well
5: i guess what we're gonna have to do now is we're gonna have to get a rival team to build it in javascript and then you all can race oh man oh my god eric just sent <laughs> the full
1: stack about perfection.: <laughs> we'll have to put that in the show notes have to put a, a link to that in the show notes but uh
0: i don't mean to digress but i actually i do i'm curious why the move away from rust
5: Dave? Why move away from Rust? Well, Justice, you're just trying to steal the thunder for my talk next week. Oh. No, oh, yeah. Well, don't worry, because this will come out after. So, okay, why move away from Rust? Are you familiar with Conway's Law? I'm familiar with Conway's Game of Life. Well, Conway is incredibly prolific man. Think of man. I don't know. Anyways, so Conway's Law is – I don't even know if it's really a law, but it states that your software architecture will mimic your communication patterns. So like the canonical example is if you have a three teams working on a compiler, you're going to get a three phase compiler. And it's because, you know, when you have teams and they're all focused on you know, the problem that they're solving, you know, they're going to have a lot of communication within their teams. But very naturally, the communication across teams is not going to be as high. And so the reason I think why we had Rust in our stack in the first place was because we had a team that was focused on data science and they were doing research and designing models and working in Python, never really having the intention of their models deploying to production. they were just focused on building good models. And then we had a machine learning engineering team who was focused on taking those models and deploying them to production and making them fast, et cetera. And what happens there is when you have those two different teams with two different focuses, you know, they each try and solve that same problem in a different way. And so Even before I got here at SimpleBet, the decision was made that we were going to use Rust to solve that problem and keep the research side in in Python. And we had this like really expensive process where our data scientists would have to document their models. And I'm like thinking like, well, why is documenting a model so hard? (laughs) You know, like why do why can't they just describe these features? And the reason why there's not a lot of literature if you go to look at how to document a model is because no one does that. It's just a expensive, wasteful process. And so Despite the expensive nature of having two split teams, one doing the research and one doing the production modeling, we were able to build something that, that really worked in, in Rust and deployed as a NIF and Elixir, which is really cool. But when we spent more time like going back to the drawing board and thinking about the organizational design, it was very clear that the people who are building the models need to be the same people who are deploying them to production. So we moved to a service-oriented architecture where our models stay in Python and Uh, We built better tooling to do testing and back testing and increase the performance. And so we removed that Rust dependency and now it's a network bound service that's running our models. So it it works a lot better for us. We're able to move quickly and we're not spending so much time redeploying stuff. That that was a long answer. So (laughs) that's
0: okay. It's a really good answer.
1: It sounds like it's the, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail Mm -hmm. or maybe it goes the other way. Also, think it's not all that common to change change course so dramatically, like especially so early in a startup. Usually, there's stakeholders present that like are really fixated on this is you know was my decision or I'm really bought into this philosophy. It's really unique to Simplebet to be able to recognize the flaws that exist and to make like really major changes to the way you're doing things and we are doing things. Oh, in order. Yeah, in order to be more efficient or to come up with a better solution at the end. So kudos to you and all the management that made those decisions.
5: Well, I give credit to our machine learning systems team who has done that and has really made big strides in our uh, ML infrastructure. I just want to say, just because it's a ridiculous term, so when you have those two teams that are split up. And, you know, you're suffering from the consequences of Conway's law. What you do is a inverse Conway maneuver, which is when you reorganize your teams to reflect the architectural changes that you want. So we did an inverse Conway maneuver to fix that problem. (laughs) Sounds like a
4: Star Trek. Ship thing or something. I don't know. I
0: don't know. <laughs> so, Dave, we have another guest waiting in the wings, and we want to get one more in before we wrap up this episode. We've been really glad to have you, and I think that we'll probably have you on for a full episode again here in the near future. I want to give you a chance, though, to make any final plugs or give you the final word before you go.
5: It's wonderful to get the three of you together. Missing all of you. And Todd, I'll see you in a week.
0: Until next time. Bye, Dave. Well, that was Dave Lucia, everybody. Really, really fun guy. He's really smart. He's a great leader. And man, it's just awesome to have him on the show. We we will have to do another episode with him. Eric, I don't know how much we should tease like season four, even though I feel like we know what we're going to do.
4: Yeah, I think we're we're pretty settled on an idea right now. So yeah, I guess we can toss it out and see if we haven't done too much into it. So if this is something no one wants, then I guess we can – not work on it, but hopefully. Anyways, yeah, we're going to work on architecture of applications. So like how big Elixir apps work and how small ones work. And hopefully we can kind of get everything in between and talk to a bunch of different people about how they lay out their code. Well yeah.
1: cool. And I would like to throw a shout out. Dave is too modest. That machine learning team we have at SimpleBet is a real who's who of geniuses. So they're all talking about their... PhD dissertations and Ivy League credentials and whatnot all the time. So when
0: you say the machine learning team, do you mean the data science team over there? Is that the same?
1: Yeah, I guess it's all one and the same now.
0: Okay. Because I remember, so I've done some work over at SimpleBet, and I recall there's a data science team, a data engineering team, and then there was like a a developer team. And so maybe they've kind of just changed the nomenclature since I last was deeply involved. Greg Mefford, everybody, just joined us on the podcast.
6: How's it going? Apparently, I'm a self-disciplined amplifier. I don't know if that's good or bad.
1: <laughs> what is this background? So for the listeners, wow, I can't... It's I hard to describe. to describe. It looks like if if Greg was in a computer. So does anybody remember the feature film Tron?
0: Yeah, this is a miracle of cable management. Yeah. I have so much respect right now for Greg. Method. So
6: the listeners can imagine if you had like some of those enterprise like network switches that go in racks. If you've ever seen one of those things as you're walking by the closet in your enterprisey building, so if you took the motherboards out of that and just like splayed them out on the wall, like in a production configuration, and then cabled them all up, that's what you see on the wall there.
1: Is this a modular computer? Then is that a no? It's just a network switch. You? It's a <laughs> bunch of network switches.
6: I have some of these how
0: do you use it? What is the, uh, yeah.
6: Oh, you don't use it. It's just, it's a piece of art.
0: Oh, it's a piece of art. Very nice. Um, I would pay for a piece of art like that.
1: Wow. Okay. Greg is showing us the internals of a network switch. The cable management though is to me the,
6: yeah. So here's the thing. If I, if I could get paid enough to make a living, just like arranging cables like that, I would do it. It's a lot of fun.
1: I'll give you 60 bucks to come to my house.
0: Speaking of art, and Greg, we're going to get to you in a minute. We've got some things to talk about for sure. But speaking of pieces of art, your smart mirror, Todd, I'd really like to
1: build one of those. Oh, thank you. I've heard a lot of people talk about this mirror. Use air quotes when you say smart mirror. But yeah, thank you. I didn't use air quotes. No, you should use air quotes. Because it's not smart. (laughs) It's not that smart, but we should post a link
0: to the blog post. Oh, yeah. It'll get in the notes. So, Greg, this is fascinating. We've been trying to get you on the show for a little while now. We were able to get you on today, sort of on a whim. We will still do an episode, a full on episode about Greg and the work that you're doing. But, you know, this is too good of an opportunity to pass up. You are over at Bleacher Report. How's it going over there? What are you working on? What are you guys using Elixir for?
6: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We are building sort of that third place for sports fans right like we're we're trying to give you the sports news and alerts that you want but also the social engagement and community and just kind of building that discussion around sports in a sports specific way so we're obviously doing that on mobile platforms as far as android and ios, iOS goes but then all of our back end stuff is for the most part in elixir and also some .Net for the scores and stats components
0: Mm-mm. and what are you doing over there
6: I recently kind of stopped coding and started not managing, but tech leading. So I didn't want to stop coding, but kind of like there's so much other work to do that that's kind of the tech lead thing
1: that happens sometimes. So the rumor is that Ben Marks has moved on to a different opportunity. And so are you sort of filling his role?
6: Yeah, Ben has kind of transcended into the ether and he's working at some sort of ultra stealth thing that I don't actually know what he's doing anymore. So uh, Ben, if you're out there, we love you. We miss you. Let us know. He is alive. Yeah. But yeah, so Ben was our was our architect role, kind of overseeing all of our backend developers. So now I'm filling that backend functional lead role. And also, you know, to the extent that we needed the architecture role.
0: Mm, so everyone
4: is moving around. Eric also just got a new title. I'm a technical architect and developer. But if my slides at Lone Star are to be believed, I'm also a wizard. So.
1: Congratulations. <laughs> So Greg, this season on Elixir Wizards, we're talking a little bit about hiring and training. And I know that, or at least the last I heard was that Bleacher Report was expanding, building out one or two new teams. How has that been going so far?
6: Yeah, that has been going pretty much as well as you could expect a big you know, growth to go. I think growth is a thing that we're, it's a challenge that is just an industry challenge that everybody has. We're tackling it as best we can. But I think we're at that, awkward stage of growth where you can't know what everyone's doing anymore. We're getting to that size where you kind of have to start to figure out how you're going to have autonomy on your teams. And everyone that knows me will laugh when I hold up this book that I've been telling everybody to get and read, Team Topologies, is like how to do organization design and how to think about teams interacting with each other. So that's been one of the big things that I've personally been thinking a lot about and trying to sort of evangelize other people on how we can Like, even make sense out of how our teams, what our teams' missions are and like how they interact with each other and all that stuff.
1: How familiar are you with Conway's Law?
6: Yeah, very familiar. Yeah. So, like, I've been, (laughs) I've been explaining to, I mean, not explaining, I've been like assuming that people already know, but also telling them in case they don't about this because it's, it's one of those things where, you know, Conway's Law dictates that the technical solutions that you're able to build are constrained by the communication structures of your company. So it's not like, Your tech will be exactly the communication structures of your company, but it's constrained. Mm. So one of the things that we've been experimenting with is what they call an inverse Conway maneuver, which is like using Conway's law to to your advantage. So like if you would like to have a decoupled architecture of small services, maybe you should consider having a decoupled architecture of small teams. So like, that's kind of the place that some of us are thinking.
0: I think we know now what the word of the year is going to be. People are just going to be dropping this everywhere. I have never heard of it. I heard of Conway's Game of Life, but I have never heard of this until this Conway's Law until- Is that the today. same
6: Conway? Because I feel like I've had that discussion with somebody and I don't remember what the answer was.
1: It's not to be known. It Just use use your imagination. It could be the same Conway. It could be Tim Conway.
0: All Conways are the same Conway. It
4: is a different Conway.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. So thanks for talking about that. We were just talking to Dave Lucia a little bit about organization structures. and, And so it was good to see your perspective on building an organization as well.
6: So that's a happy confluence, but it's not the kind of confluence that you're normally familiar with that's not so happy. Confluence being the Atlassian project. Oh
0: product. Oh. Oh uh, yeah. I was like, what is what are you referring to? Yeah, no, anything by Atlassian I'm not happy with. HipChat especially. Jeez, what a mistake. Oh man, wow. they're gonna oh, I shouldn't trash talk Atlassian. They're too big of a company. Yeah.
1: This week's sponsor Atlassian. <laughs> <laughs> you're, uh, okay. So Greg, you're gonna be at Lone Star Elixir this week. So a lot of people know you from Bleacher Report. A lot of people know you from being on the Nerves core team. But in the last year or so, you have been focused a lot on telemetry, open census projects, spandex, if I'm not mistaken. And so can you maybe give us a little bit of a sneak preview on your talk and maybe just some other interesting things that are happening around telemetry in the Elixir community?
6: Yeah, like observability and monitoring and metrics have always been kind of my nerd side project that I always try to bring in if, if the company doesn't have like good metrics, time series metrics and monitoring and stuff like that, that tends to be something I really enjoy bringing in. So that's where I got involved from the beginning in the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation it has an observability working group that I I won't say that I helped form it, but like I was there when it was formed and kind of did some of those early reviews of the document. Tristan Slaughter was really the one that that spearheaded all that stuff. But I've been participating in that. And in the broader industry, like outside the Beam ecosystem, there's this thing called Open Telemetry. Which is the merger of these two projects called Open Tracing and Open Census. So I'll get into it more in my talk here at Lone Star. But the idea there is that those two projects have merged together into this new combined project in the industry. So we're working on bringing that as a first class thing to the Beam. Very
0: cool. Greg, have you gotten to look at the schedule for Lone Star very much?
6: I have seen it. I don't remember much about it, though.
0: I mean, just out of curiosity, and it's okay if the answer is no, but are, is there any talks that you noticed or people that you're looking forward to hear speak?
6: I am super looking forward to the whole thing. Like I I couldn't pick favorites. I was interested to see, though, that there is a talk specifically about the telemetry project on the Beam. So mine's about open telemetry, which is like an industry standard, you know, thing that we're going to have a library on the Beam for. But people may or may not be familiar with this like Beam telemetry thing that existed before open telemetry existed. I'm sure that there will be a lot of confusion there because it's almost the same word. But anyway, so telemetry is like this kind of very simple API to, from a library or from an application, you can fire an event that says, here's something that happened, or maybe there's some metrics involved, and then something else can capture that and use it however they want to. So I was, I was interested to go hear that talk about specifically what they're trying to pitch from the telemetry side.
0: And I also noticed that you have the uh, nerves icon on the Elixir Slack. And I'm curious, do you have any NERVS projects that you're working on or tell us a little bit about what you like about NERVS or have been using NERVS for.
6: Nerves has a special place in my heart. I think it's really game changing if you want to, as a hobbyist, build some kind of embedded system and you you also want to learn Elixir or use Elixir. It makes it extremely easy to get started on just firing up a Raspberry Pi or like, you know, the Raspberry Pi Zero is like five bucks at Micro Center. So it's basically free. And you can run this little device that does some little function that you want to do. Like Todd's magic mirror, for example, is something that you can you can build with Nerves potentially. And for me, that it was the project that got me really into the Nerves community. Was I wanted to learn more about Elixir, and I also had a bunch of Raspberry Pis because I'm just a nerd and I had these things and I'd never used them. That was the thing that coalesced it for me. And I was like, yes, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to help out with Nerves, however I can, like whether that's just docs or like helping people get started or answering questions in Slack. So that's kind of how I got involved into Nerves, and it's always. It's always been a special thing for me because of that. And I think it it like gave me that foot in the door of the elixir community. Now I have some identity that I can like talk to people about what brings me to the community and all that stuff. Lately I've had less time to contribute there and I feel really guilty about that, but at the same time like each of us only has so much energy in the day and you have to spend it like however you need to.
1: Yeah, I think it's natural for people to ebb and flow into open source projects. So, I think when I first started working in there Chris Cote was like really actively involved. Mark Sabald was really actively involved and their time spent has kind of like changed a little bit and we're seeing people like John Karstens like stepping up and doing a lot of work in there. So I'm interested, you are one of the few people in the NERVS community that I know of that has a traditional education in electrical engineering, if I'm not mistaken, from University of Cincinnati. So what was your first NERVS project? What was the first thing that you made?
6: That's a good question. I mean, i I think like many people getting started with nerves, I went through sort of just the make a light blink phase, and you know, how do I run just a Phoenix application that's Hello world from Phoenix on a network device? And like let's just pause for a second. Like if you had an Arduino, like how do you run a Phoenix app on that? You just I don't know, is that even possible with nerves? You can like just deploy a Hello World Phoenix app and you have this network attached appliance thing, and that was like amazing to me, right out of the gate, like first day. That was pretty easy. As far as projects go, I have this library called Blink Chain that's for driving strings of NeoPixel LEDs. So they're like red, green, blue, reprogrammable, you know, like 1000 frame per second <laughs> LED things. So you can kind of like spray a stream of data into there and then tell them all to apply the new color. So you can build a screen out of it. I have a screen over here that I could pull out. That's been kind of like my pet project on the Nerf side is kind of building and maintaining that library because I like seeing things blink and I like things that like I can write some code and make something magical happen. Like, you know, the, the neon cat rainbow effect, like going across these grid of LEDs is pretty satisfying. So I've never really done anything useful with nerves. It's more like just, you know, making things blink and actually, no, that's not true. I used to work at Latote and we used it in production a lot. So that's kind of a special case that was at work. So at home, I've never done anything useful with it like, like Todd has.
0: <laughs> maybe it's time for all of us to get on board with a smart mirror 2.0. What do you think,
4: Todd? I'd love some help and- I pull requested into the smart mirror.
1: That's true. The, Eric is my only other contributor besides me.
4: The only thing I did was make, you had a magic number maybe that I made into a module attribute just to match the other one that you had. So that's my big contribution.
1: Don't diminish your contributions. If you're listening out there, every contribution you make to open source is valuable. So don't think that it's not significant. So, well, let's wrap up real quick. But Greg, last year at uh, Lone Star Elixir, I think the big hit of the conference was Sus- Susumu Yamazaki and his talk on what is now called Pelame. And as I understand, Susumu will be joining us again this year. And as I understand it, you and your family are going to be visiting Japan sometime in 2020. That is
3: true. Is that true? Yes.
1: What are your plans for Japan, and are you planning on visiting the fukuoka.ex meetup while you're there?
6: We will be further north visiting some friends and traveling around and things like that. So, yeah, we won't be able to make it down south. But I, I 100% want to do that at some point, and I don't think I'll make it to the Japan Elixir conference this year, but I would like to do that as well at some point.
0: We should do a full-on Elixir Wizards tour, get all the guests, everybody, we should all go to Japan together.
1: I'll do it. Party plane. Okay. If you're listening today from Japan, arigato gozaimasu.
0: Dodd has spoken in at least three languages while we've been on this call today. Impressive. Greg, any final words or
6: plugs for the audience before we let you go? No, I think that's about it. Happy to see everybody at Lone Star.
0: Thank you so much, Greg. Appreciate it. Melvin Cedeno, pleasure to make your acquaintance, man. How are you doing? Lovely. I think I met you at Elixir Comp. You're the host guy, right? I am. I am. And I'll be at Lone Star hosting that tomorrow too. Oh man, you got them all locked down. I wish. There's a few that are really, they, they don't want to give up whoever their current MC is. And I'm sure that they do a fine job, you know, and when they're ready, they'll come around. Melvin, you work at Split Gym, right? Yes. Great. I am really looking forward to your talk. I think that your talk at Lone Star tomorrow. I think that we have a lot in common. Can you talk a little bit about you know just the high level? You don't have to give away too much of the golden nuggets, but just high level. What are you talking about at Lone Star tomorrow?
7: Yeah, so I guess like a long story short, it's about people from non-traditional backgrounds coming in and joining the tech industry. Like, and I probably have one of the most non-traditional things. Like, I'm not even sure I graduated high school, and like right after that, like I started a marketing company, and like. Did that for a while, then until the cannabis industry in Northern California and did that for like almost a decade and then getting back into tech. And then just kind of how this whole, not the whole thing, but the industry has a way of making us forget that we're really good at other things, especially for like coming back into it, dealing with all of like, I don't know, uh, kind of like the imposter syndrome stuff and how I wish this was a talk that I could have seen like a year or two years ago when I went to like uh, my coding bootcamp, because a lot of it was super technical, but I wanted to hear the stories of some people coming from non-traditional backgrounds and how they managed to navigate, I don't know, getting their first gig and that kind of jazz. So,
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I also have had some sort of a non-traditional route through tech. Since you mentioned it, I'm curious because I've seen this on Twitter now a number of times where someone's like, I'm thinking about dropping out of high school and then everybody's you know giving them their opinion. And I didn't Get a bachelor's degree in college. So, you know, I'm, I certainly wouldn't say anybody has to go to college. And then I got to thinking about it, I was like, would I even tell someone that they really needed to graduate high school? I'm not really sure that it's absolutely necessary. Like, no one's ever asked for my high school diploma. So, yeah, it's funny one. I'm not sure. Like, at least for me, like, I got lucky, I went to school in New Hampshire.
7: And they had a lot of other fancy programs that they were always like trying to test out. Mm-hmm. So I ended up doing a different type of thing. It wasn't like a high school diploma. It wasn't a GED. It was something like brand new they came up with. And they had these things called ELOs, like extending learning opportunities. And I ended up getting certified in like video production instead of like getting going to high school and all that. So it's like kind of a tech school type deal,
0: but it wasn't a high school diploma. So you do video production? I do. <laughs> oh my gosh. Season four of the Elixir Wizards podcast can have video if Melvin wants it to. Oh shit. Oh, oh, yeah. Can oh my I- gosh, we've never <laughs> cursed on this podcast. I don't think. No, that's probably not true. Anyway, Todd is our special guest host today. Todd's been, been re- really nailing the questions actually, Todd. You're better at it than me for sure. <laughs> so I might be out of a job next time we have the show. But yeah, Todd, what do you got for us?
1: Yeah. So Melvin, I'm also looking forward to seeing your talk at Lone Star. And You have been playing it kind of close to the vest the last, I don't know, few months or so, and not letting on, not giving us any sneak preview as as to what it's about. But your lightning talk at ElixirConf, I thought, was also very interesting. If I remember correctly, it was basically, what was the title of the talk, Melvin?
7: other benefits to crying in tech.
1: <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, so it was basically about more of the emotional side of being aware of the emotional side of of working in this industry. So, and I think it's a real testament to coming from a non-traditional background that we're able to see this other perspective. So, I think for those of us that have been doing this for a really long time or came from this as a out of our formal education into programming, there are a lot of things we take for granted. And that was a really kind of eye-opening to kind of remember back to what it was like first getting started out and how tough it can be to change industries and get into this world of programming. So yeah, and, and I know there's going to be a lot of people there that are looking at, you know, boot camps or have been going to boot camps and are trying to find their first job and and I know that for the last I guess I've known you for maybe a year or so now. Yeah, so you've been mostly focusing on just doing like freelance or working as a contractor rather than to go into a like a full-time elixir job. Is that right?
7: I felt as though that was more of like out of a need. I felt like a lot more luck, like I got a lot more results going down that route than the other one like uh, I don't know Turing teaches Ruby. And I felt pretty good about the Ruby. But anytime I'd be applying the Ruby gigs, 9 out of 10 times, I wouldn't hear anything back. And then I was really liking Elixir and I started applying the Elixir gigs. And then at least when I switched over, I would hear back from probably 80-90% of the companies I was applying to. So that's something that I noticed right off the bat. I was like, I should probably just keep going on this route because the results are just literally speaking for themselves. And it just turned out and worked out in a way that the remote gig that I kind of wanted, uh, it was just easier for me to find in the Elixir world and the like freelance world. And
0: that was more of like out of a need type deal. Can you talk a little bit about the bootcamp situation? Because this has been a very hot topic on Twitter the last few weeks around Lambda School in particular and ISAs and someone who I used to really respect, but who has been doing everything in his power to make that no longer the case, DHH, just constantly like hammering. Can you talk a little bit about, yeah, wait, let's say
1: that again? Austin Allred, I think. Yeah, going
0: Oh, yeah. He's hammering Austin Allred, the CEO of Lambda School. And it's a very dramatic, petty type of thing that's happening online. I'm curious what your take is on this. I mean, you went to a boot camp. Did you think it was worth it? Yes. I think you got to be careful looking at boot camps and
7: their numbers. Right. Um, a lot of them play like the numbers game where they'll show you one like 80% of our people had jobs like – in certain cohorts, but that number might be three or four years old. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of boot camps that aren't all that transparent, bottom. But uh, there's certain organizations out there, like nonprofit ones, like Sir, like the Council on Integrity and Results, and something else. But CIRR.org. And I like what they do. They pretty much like if you're a part of their whole like little group, and you have a boot camp, you have to account for 100% of your students, and essentially track them on, see what their progress is. And I think ones that are doing stuff like that where the numbers are pretty much like being verified by like some outside auditor, something like that, or you can do your research and figure out like, do you trust the numbers that they're giving you? Mm-hmm. I think those type of boot camps that are doing that and are showing
0: good results, those ones are worth it. So would you personally recommend Turing?
7: Oh, all day. All okay. day. I'm,
0: I'm biased. Yeah. Well, I am too. I mean, I went to Launch Academy in Boston and I would absolutely recommend them to anybody that was considering breaking into the field. So, and when I hear about Lambda School, it seems like they actually do have a great curriculum. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, obviously very smart instructors. They seem very much in the same vein as App Academy, which I think is safe to recommend. Do, what do you think of ISAs in general? These income, what do they call Income share agreements? What do you think of that?
7: I think they're a great way
0: to get people in. Right? What is it? Like, with this in terms of land with school 17 oh wow if you make more than 50 grand a year which yeah. apparently is not a lot of money two years
7: to take. i think they're okay i don't know there's certain things i've been reading up with in terms of like situation i don't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes but it seemed like they're selling off their contracts and that's how they're ending up making their money off those something like that oh selling off the to
0: collection services probably something like that where yeah. like, i don't know there's something weird going of but course, I, because they're not enforceable contracts, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like, can you imagine taking one of those to court? It would get thrown out in a heartbeat. I mean, I think they're a great way to get people
7: in, especially if people want to like change fields and all that. It's a great way to like give people help. And if the curriculum's there and if people have like a lot of the uh, resources or whatnot mm-hmm. available to them, mm-hmm. I think it's possible to still get that dev job afterwards. Cause that's like the real goal. It's not so much like, I don't know if, you do end up getting a job afterwards. I don't think people care that they're paying like 17%, especially if they're paying like getting paid like 30000 before or something like that. Right. But in terms of like people actually achieving those results afterwards in terms of like getting that first gig after, I'm more, what's the word? Hesitant to support a place that doesn't actually like give you the numbers or doesn't have up-to-date numbers. Right. I, I don't have a problem with ISAs as long as the people are actually getting, people are getting hired after like, I don't know, 80 to 85%. Right. As long as there's some real, some not absolutely garbage number of people six respond to the program that are getting hired, I think they're fine. So bottom line, do your due diligence.
0: Todd, go ahead.
1: Oh, yeah. I just wanted to jump in here and say that I have worked with touring school graduates for five or six years now, and they have a really, really strong curriculum there. So I've volunteered at other boot camps before and that try to pace everything. So you're in and out in 11 weeks or 12 weeks. And touring school is very thorough, although it's not the cheapest place to attend. Jeff Kashmir is the, I guess, the founder of of touring school. He's done a really, really good job of setting it up so that you're getting a quality education. Mm. I would definitely jump at the chance to interview anybody that comes out of touring Mm. versus, you know, just some other school. Also, I Say that Lambda School, I don't know a ton about how they finance things and how everything is working, but a good friend of mine is the vice president of outcomes there. And the stories that I hear from him about, you know, these people that are really like changing their lives, very inspirational. So, like Mm. you said, like reiterate is definitely know what you're getting into before you start and make sure that it's something that, you know, you really are going to be committed to and think you can be successful at. I think it's a great alternative opportunity versus. Going to a traditional like four-year college.
0: And speaking of traditional routes, I mean, Todd, Eric, did y'all go to universities, do CS degrees?
4: Yeah, I was super traditional, I guess. I did CS, Bachelor of Science and Computer Science. And as far as I'm concerned, it was almost worthless <laughs> just because like... you. How could- much did you pay in total? A lot, but remember, I'm, I'm uncomfortable <laughs> saying, say. but <laughs> I went to a private school to start with that had a decent scholarship and then I transferred to Towson University where they merged two programs where so you could get a programming degree without actually ever programming, mm-hmm. which just is like mind-blowing to me. But yeah, so like given that fact, I feel like my specific degree was not necessarily worth it, but I like made the best of my time by like working in the computer science department and like doing all that stuff. So, it's like, The four years of time was to delay getting a real job was worth it, but not the actual education, maybe.
0: (laughs) And just so I'm clear, I've been working with Eric for three years now, and you're easily one of the best developers I've ever met, just incredibly prolific in your ability to put out code and really high quality code at that. Todd, did you do a CS program?
1: I studied information systems, uh, which is in the School of Business at the University of Wisconsin. So, but I think if boot camps would have been more popular, I definitely would have been there because when I was going to college was in the late nineties and I saw all this dot-com boom and my older brother was in the industry already. And all I wanted to do was get the knowledge that I needed to start working Mm -hmm. in the web and I got there and found out it was not exactly that. So mm. it was my first experience in Java and it has been my last experience in Java <laughs> while I was there. So I think I, I definitely definitely did learn some things and it was an in-state you know education, so it wasn't super expensive, mm. but it definitely it was more than what I was looking for. I could have bailed on a lot of business classes and just gone more into the engineering stuff.
0: So mm-hmm. I could talk about this all day. Education to me is an absolutely fascinating topic. Melvin, do you want to tell us a little bit about split gyms and sort of what you're working on over there? Ah, sure. Just a funny one to talk about because it's the easier one of the contracts I've had to explain.
7: But essentially gym memberships, but Airbnb for gym memberships, that's essentially what the product is. So if you have a gym membership and you're not gonna use all your days, you could essentially sell some of your days for cash. I mean, right now, we're all of our gyms are in New York, so unless you're in New York, you can't really use us. But no, I just build out backend endpoints, I'm currently working on some scraping stuff in Python. But nothing too crazy, nothing too fancy. But I like the team a lot. We're all distributed. Uh, one of our buddies is in Brazil, Cristiano, I think. Todd
0: just had a project with not too long ago. Cristiano yeah. works with everybody. <laughs> oh, justice. You're the justice. <laughs> I am the justice, yeah. Oh, man, that's funny. No, I love that, dude. He is hilarious. So has he told you about the project that we're working on together? Nah. (laughs) It's a chatbot project. Oh, sorry. We've had so many conversations today. Anyway, it's a very interesting chatbot project. I've actually started working on it in 2015 in in Rails. Yeah, we'll have to have him tell you about it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, No, that's essentially it. Just building out endpoints,
7: trying to switch over things to GraphQL at some point. But yeah, I like it. They're fun. The team's super chill, and that's probably my favorite part.
1: Cool. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you down in Austin. Any final plugs? You want to plug your Twitter or uh, website for the project you're working on? Uh, me? nah, nothing too crazy. Like I'm not really a big Twitter dude or any of that. All right. Well, look for Melvin at Lone Star Elixir. Thanks for joining us today, Melvin. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thanks for coming, Melvin. Zach Thomas, everybody. How are you?
3: Hi, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good.
0: So, Zach, really excited to have you on for this very unusual episode of Elixir Wizards. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to learn Elixir and where you're working, all that?
3: Sure, yeah. I've been doing software development for about two years now. I was a Turing grad, a Turing School of Software and Design grad. Uh, I work at Blinker, a company for buying and selling your car online, and have been there for a bit over a year now. And we, are progressively using more Elixir every day. And now everything that new that we're writing on the back end is currently in Elixir.
0: Blinker. Is that the New England way of saying turn signal?
3: Kind of, yeah. Like, I think that's the real clever pun. Yeah.
0: Okay. Very cool. So amazing that you went to Turing because we just had a, another Turing grad on the show, Melvin Sedino, and he's also speaking at. Lone Star Elixir Conf, this week, which that just seems like an amazing coincidence. Tell us about your time at the program. What like what did you like about it? What was the best part?
3: I liked it a lot. I really like really intense environments like that. And Turing is a very intense environment. It's very much a place where you get out uh, what you put in. And I tried to invest as much as I could into that. So yeah, no, I liked it a lot. I like kind of being enveloped by a community and, and learning new things and that was a really good environment for that. So and I think it was a pretty good launch board for my career so far.
1: Did you do any traditional college before you went into training? Yeah.
3: I have bachelors in liberal arts, so you know, well prepared for the world. Your parents must be thrilled. Oh, tremendous. So I can read real good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's actually pretty important in our profession, so
3: yeah, to be, I mean, in, unironically, it really has like helped in a lot of ways that I didn't expect that it would being able to like decipher large amounts of information and being able to synthesize it very quickly. It's all stuff that the college that I went to really emphasized. I went to a kind of a weird place and that was very much like what was taught there. And it's been weirdly helpful. So no, I, I definitely don't regret the liberal artsy like no idea what I'm going to do type of path.
1: Nice. So you're giving a talk at Lone Star Elixir this year, and the title on the website is Getting the Frog Out of the Well. Can you give us a little elevator pitch on what that means and then maybe expand a little bit more on on what the purpose of the talk is? Absolutely.
3: The elevator pitch is that you should be having way more fun at work, and if you're not, it's a problem. Mm. It used to be about componentized design, so I made a pretty big switch there. I'm sensing a theme in myself. The talk used to be about breaking down big applications into small horizontal components. And then halfway through, like I realized from a combination of conversations with people in the community and my team, that what I'm really trying to solve isn't how best to manage application state. Mm. What I'm really trying to figure out is how do I put together a system that is gonna be fun to work in, right? how do I put together a system that's going to be enjoyable to do new work in to fix old things in? And that sounds kind of lofty, but I think the reason that we've all gravitated towards this community like Elixir and why a lot of us gravitate towards things like Elm or Haskell or Rust or something like that is at its core because they're fun. Mm. I really think that we kind of dismiss things like fun or annoying or, those types of hard to pin down emotions as not important or not indicative of something Mm -hmm. real. But I really think that, you know, really deep and profound sense, they really are one of our only guides in how well we're doing at something as complex as like system architecture or designing an app or anything. I think when something is fun, it's our subconscious saying like you're on the right track and you're, doing what you need to be doing and you're chugging away in the direction you want to be going. Mm. And when something isn't fun, there's someone in the back of your head that's trying to tell you something. And wow. I think that listening to that is really important on all levels.
4: I've done a recent refractor of a side project that like, I've been trying to let stew as I go through it. And every time I do something new. It's like, all right, this feels wrong or whatever. And it's just like, totally just like, does it feel wrong? Or like, am I enjoying what this looks like, how it works and whatnot? And like, that's been like my current guiding like force for that project. It's cool to to see you have a similar yeah, take.
3: Absolutely. And I think that's really important, right? Like, especially when we're working on a team, the people I think who we often really like on a team are the people that create environments that allow us to have a good time while we're at work, both in terms of like the managers that we really like are people that allow our day to be like enjoyable or productive. And the contributors that we like to work with or like come into a code base afterward are the people that that leave it in a state where putting new stuff in or fixing stuff isn't horrible. So I think it's a really
1: good metric. So that sounds like a really awesome talk and I can't wait to See it in person, but you didn't say anything about frogs. So, what does this have to do with getting a frog? Oh, that's a
3: good point. The frog thing is there's a Chinese idiom about a frog that sits at the bottom of a well and looks up and sees the sky. And a lot of people use it to mean like limited perspective, like in conversation, that's how you'd use it. But it comes from an older story about a frog sitting at the bottom of a well and then a bird comes along. Or a turtle or various other animals depending on who you ask and say like yo what are you doing at the bottom of this well this is kind of strange like what are you doing that doesn't look very pleasant the frog's like i'm loving it down here i'm having a great time the bird's like don't you want to see like the rest of the sky and the frog's like i don't know what you mean like the sky is that little round thing up at the top of the the top of the well and a lot of people take it to mean like oh the frog is dumb and he should listen to the bird and hop out of the well and go exploring for a while. But it really, I think there's a more subtle reading to that that says that the frog is happy in the well. You know what I mean? Maybe explore your horizons, like push your boundaries for sure, but the bird is happy in the sky, the frog is happy in the well, the turtle likes the ocean. And we should kind of listen to that. You know what I mean? But I'm not saying that any one perspective is wrong. I'm kind of saying the exact opposite that there isn't really a privileged perspective of this is the right way to do a thing, like there isn't a correct view to take on a lot of this stuff.
0: This parable of the frog reminds me of that David Foster Wallace speech where the the two young fish are They're swimming fish. in the water 100%. and the older <laughs> the older fish swims by and says, "Hey boys, how's the water?" And the two young fish don't really know what he's talking about. And they
3: they look at each other and like, what the hell's water? Like, yeah, it's kind of like knowing what is your being aware of what surrounds you Hmm. and how that impacts you and being kind of cognizant of how am I moving through this environment? I think that's a, a really good kind of corollary.
0: I believe the Western progenitor of this idea was the Platonic cave you know about that
3: i've heard about that that mm-hmm. analogy got brought up the other day at the meetup i take a little bit of issue with that because mm-hmm. it's kind of the the subtle inverse of what i'm actually saying so the allegory of the cave is the whole idea that there's like distinctly hierarchical levels of reality i don't know if we, this is like philosophy cast now so mm-hmm. you, know, okay. the, you, <laughs> you know the liberal arts grad what <laughs> do want, want me to do like i tell you I studied philosophy. What do you want me to do? But like the platonic allegory of the cave is very much about like hierarchical levels of reality, especially in the context that he's referring to that in the dialogue that he brings it up. It's very much about like, maybe there isn't a true final reality, but there's definitely hierarchical reality like
0: There's higher fidelity.
3: Right, exactly. person leaves the cave, sees the sun, comes back, tries to get them out of the cave. Then he says, what if that itself is another cave? And then there's like N levels of nested cavedom. And what I'm kind of saying is the inverse of that, that there kind of isn't a good direction to go.
0: Be satisfied with the cave that you're in.
3: It's not even that. It's that you're not getting out of caves. Hmm. You might get out of a cave and figure out more about yourself. But you're not getting out of caves.
0: To bring it back to computer science, have you read Gödel Escherbach?
3: Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I haven't read the whole thing because nobody in the world has, but. Yeah, no, you're crazy to read I read, a, the whole I read thing. a little bit of it, yeah. And
0: then you probably remember the like genies within genies. Totally. Yeah, that's pretty early in the book. Yeah, I think that's. It's very interesting the way different people look at that, especially if you're kind of coming from like an Eastern philosophical viewpoint versus a Western philosophical
3: viewpoint. Right. And that's kind of the, I think, the delineator there. Really what I'm advocating for is not like an abandonment of moving towards like having an upward vector out of cavedom. It's more like for any group of N individuals, their journey out of a cave is going to look different from any other group of N individuals. Mm -hmm. That there isn't like a universalness to cavedom. Yeah. You know what I mean? The frog has a different journey of cave to whatever, to whatever than the bird does or the turtle does. And that I think at the end of the day is my point that the guiding force in what direction do we go to move up in levels of happiness or how good we are doing at our job or whatever, the guiding force is something like fun or how happy we are. Flow maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing I've been thinking a lot. Like does flow equate to happiness? Does equate to whatever? Mm. Mm. I was going to bring that up a lot in my talk, but I think like a day before I was debugging this really awful problem and I was having a horrible time and I looked up and two hours have disappeared Mm. and I'm like, Oh, well, all right, I've hit flow state, but I was pretty miserable the whole time. Yeah. So I think that's complicated, but totally.
1: Wow. I think that's a really thoughtful idea for a talk. I, I'm really looking forward to it. Which talks at uh, Lone Star Elixir are you looking forward to seeing, or what are you looking forward to?
3: I'm going to admit something really awful. I don't think I've looked at the list of other talks that are being given. You're speaking there, aren't you, Todd?
1: Yes. Eric and I are both going to be there. Oh,
3: okay. Excellent. The- then I'm looking forward to both of y'all's equally, is what I'll say. Ah. That is such a good diplomatic answer. I should honestly go look at the list. I've been a little bit myopic in my own life
0: right now. Actually, I wanted to ask you something, Zach, because so I am emceeing the conference. And so I've been stalking every speaker so that I could introduce them adequately. And you are by far the most difficult person on the docket to learn about just from Googling. So is that intentional?
3: I don't have a huge online footprint a lot of the time. And that's been like a little bit intentional. There's no grand conspiracy. I mostly just like, I don't post very many things onto the internet.
0: Yeah. What's something that you want the crowd at Lone Star to know about you before you take the stage?
3: That I really am wearing my best hoodie. I don't know. <laughs> I can think about that a little bit more, but.
0: Well, I'll see you at the speaker dinner tomorrow, if you'll be there. And yeah. uh, if you come yeah. up with something yeah. else, then I won't have to drop the, he's wearing his best hoodie line, which will probably honestly go over just fine with that audience. So right. Todd, do you have any more questions? I'm sorry to be so comfortable with off-topic conversation.
1: Oh, not at all. No, I think it's it was a really good synopsis of what the talk is going to be all about. It's very thought leadery, so not super technical, but more introspective or I think than most talks. And so and if it makes you feel better, I have known Zach for at least a year now. And I know almost nothing more about him. I know that he went to touring. I know that he works at Blinker. And I think I know that one of his brothers is going to flight school in Florida.
3: Wow. Yeah, that's
0: true. He's my only brother. Okay, so there we go. Where are you uh, calling us
1: from, Zach?
3: Denver. I'm calling you from, we have like a little, we call it like a meditation type room. but it's. I jokingly call it the crying closet. It's like the most quiet, secluded place in in the office.
0: Well, I would love to come see you when I'm in Denver for Elixir Conf
3: 2020. Yeah, totally. Let me know and we'll grab coffee or something or hang out. Rock and roll. Before
0: we wrap this episode up, I think for real, for real, do you have any final plugs, asks for the audience? Want to get the last word?
3: Not that I can think of. Somebody write a, if this is going out to the whole Elixir community question, why don't we like... Statically typed things as much as we should. come on, maybe we can talk about that for a little bit. Oh my gosh, not have that big the time we are definitely right. going
0: to have the static typing royal rumble with chris keithley and zach thomas and brooklyn and like we just need to get them all on the show and just have them hash it out yelling match style cnn panel style
3: it'll be lit i feel like i'd be very much on on brooklyn's side about that if i if
4: cage match at elixir Conf.
3: <laughs> i think that sounds great i'm ready
4: let's go whoever comes I'll out i'll get my types that win.
3: shirt i'll get a, a nice like haskell shirt lots of
1: Oh my gosh,
0: you and Brooklyn it. are on the same side.
1: If you haven't met Zach in person, Zach is about, what are you, about 6'6", six, 6'5"? Six, six,
3: I'm like 6'4"-ish. Six, 6'4",
1: six, oh maybe 280, 290? That's very nice of you to say that. But. Okay. <laughs> I would just say that if you were going to have a tag team wrestling match, I would probably choose Zach to be on your side. So I
3: just think it sounds like fun. I don't...
1: I don't know what the big deal
3: is.
0: I mean, it'll be pretty amusing if you – anyway, not going to get into <laughs> jokes about snapping Chris Keithley in half like a twig or anything.
3: Legal, I have nothing to do with that. So I don't know what you're talking about. It was a
0: legal maneuver.
3: Well, yeah. So Elixir
0: Fight Club is the next podcast. And thank you so much, Zach Thomas, for joining us on the show. I would love to have you back on for a full episode. I think be great. Your synopsis of your talk. I'm looking forward to your talk. I really deeply feel the things that you're talking about. I mean, you almost brought tears to my eyes because it so deeply speaks to how I view our profession. So thank you, Zach Thomas.
3: Thanks. I really appreciate that. It's been awesome talking to you guys. You guys are great. I'll be back on any time you will have me.
0: Well, this has been a very unusual and edifying and interesting episode of Elixir Wizards. I'm really glad that we got to have our favorite and only guest host Todd Residek. Thanks for coming on, Todd.
1: That's always my pleasure.
0: You really do a terrific job. You come up with really insightful, interesting questions, and you do a much better job of keeping us on topic than I do for sure. Also, thank you to my regular co-host, Eric Ostrich. Yeah, glad I could be here. Really looking forward to your talk tomorrow at Lone Star Elixir. Maybe this will go out in time for that show, but probably won't. In any case, it's okay to listen to this from the future. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our, our many guests and my co hosts, Eric Ostrich and Todd Residek. I'm Justice Epen. This has been a Toddcast. Cast. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects building web apps and Elixir, React, and Rails, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player you can also find us on instagram and twitter and facebook so add us on all of those todd where can people find you on the socials
1: yeah you can find me on twitter uh, it's super simple with no vowels in it
0: We will add that to the show notes. You can find Todd on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Justice Epen. That's just use a pen. And Eric is on Twitter at Eric Ostrich. Join us again next week for another episode of Elixir Wizards.